0: Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we have come to the end of the eighth circle. Yes, indeed, in this, the 190th episode of this podcast. We are legitimately at the end of the eighth circle of fraud. We have come through all kinds of evil pouches full of flatterers and seducers and hypocrites and simoniacs and bariters and false counselors more people than one can possibly imagine. And we've been here for a long time, and this is the final episode on the Eighth Circle of Fraud. And in this episode, I want to continue on what happened in the last episode. The last episode of this podcast was kind of a plot summary with some interpretive questions about the Eighth Huge Circle of Fraud. In this episode, I want to push it a little further and I want to talk about some interpretive problems. I'm going to raise more questions than I'm going to answer. I have various points I want to make, they're not in any specific order. They kind of run all over the place. Sorry about this. This is going to be a little bit conversational, a little bit loose in its structure. It's just important to get this kind of material down as we finish off and look back at the giant eighth circle of Inferno that has taken us (laughs) just nigh into a year to get through. Let's get started with the first questions that we can ask looking back over fraud. To do that, we have to go way back. We have to look as far back as Canto 11. Remember in Canto 11 when Virgil and Dante take a halt and they look out. Over Lower Hell Uh, And it stinks so bad That they kind of sit down and have to get used To the smell of Lower Hell Before they can go on And Virgil decides that now is a good time To map out what's ahead This is the first place we kind of Encounter the notion that Fraud is ahead of us And if we go back to Canto 11 And start at line 16 We can hear Virgil's initial explanation Of what's ahead My son he says beneath these rocks there are three circles smaller one below the other but otherwise like those you leave behind (laughs) all right you can hear a problem smaller one below the other it's hard to Think about how this giant eighth circle is smaller. Yes, the diameters of the circles are getting smaller and the area is getting smaller. But if we take the giant landscape of fraud with its 10 evil pouches, It is not in any way a smaller bit of real estate than the ninth or the seventh circles. But okay, we're going to let Virgil have it here. Smaller one below the other, but otherwise like those you leave behind. In other words, they're all circles. They're all the, the rings of hell. All these are filled with souls condemned so that the sight alone may later be enough Know how and why they are confined this way. Every evil deed despised in heaven has as its end injustice. We talked about this endlessly about justice and injustice as kind of the motivating factor of inferno. Each such end harms someone else through, and here Virgil gives it, force or fraud. Forza o confrode. Force or fraud. The two different ways that lower hell is distinguished. And of course, the seventh circle is taken up with force, with violence, and the bottom two circles, the eighth and ninth, are taken up with fraud, fraud. But since the vice of fraud is man's alone, it more displeases God, and thus the fraudulent are lower down, assailed by greater pain. This is what's so intriguing. The vice of fraud is man's alone. It seems to indicate that Only humans can commit fraud. Animals can commit violence. We've seen enough nature documentaries, right? To know that animals can create forceful violence against each other. We've probably walked enough dogs or, I don't know, been around enough cats in our lives to know this. (laughs) Raised enough guppies who eat their own young. That bit of force is common to other life forms on Earth. Fraud? Virgil seems to indicate that that is a singularly human device and so idiot is pushed farther down in hell. Virgil then later explains all the violence that is gonna happen, and the three rungs of violence and all that bit, and then he gets on to a discussion of fraud. And he says, la fraude, fraud, gnaws at every conscience at line 52 of Canto 11, whether one on him who trusted Or one who lacks such faith. Fraud against the latter only severs the bond of love that nature makes. Thus, in the second circle, nest hypocrisy, flatteries, and sorcerers, lies theft and simony, panderers, barrators, and all such filth. Virgil seems to be saying here that there are two different kinds of fraud. There is a fraud that severs just the natural human bond that's where we've been in the eighth circle. And then a kind of fraud that severs a unique trust relationship between two people. There are a couple things here that you should note. This description of fraud that Virgil gives in 11 is a little unreliable. There's a couple reasons it's not unreliable. One is because of that geographic distinction of smaller and smaller, it's a little bit. Funky when it comes to the Eighth Circle. And then that list of the fraudsters. Well, Virgil leaves out some of the fraudsters and... It seems as if it's not a complete list of them. There are perhaps reasons for this, but here's what I really want to say. We have to always see medieval poems as something in process. And I know this is hard for modern people to understand because we see the gorgeous published poetry, I don't know, of John Keats, and we accept it as a final version. <laughs> If you've ever studied Keats, you know how funny that is to think about Ode on a Grecian Urn and the notion of a final version. But okay, whatever. We still accept, I don't know, the cantos of Ezra Pound as a final version. Or we try to, because we're looking at poetry and writing as paintings. The artist finally puts the last brushstroke on and steps away. But in fact, medieval poetry, and perhaps all poetry, and perhaps all writing, is much more a matter of This has to do with how it's quote-unquote Published, that is, it isn't published, it is handwritten, and corrections and revisions are costly, expensive, difficult, and rare. You have to have this thing kind of worked out the way even John Milton did before you start putting pen to paper. The process bit here is ongoing, and I firmly believe that Dante is thinking out this poem as it goes forward. I firmly believe. That Dante begins comedy thinking each of the seven deadly sins is going to make up a rung of hell and then stops, backs up at anger, restarts the poem, then starts turning away from the seven deadly sins toward different ideas, violence, fraud, and Heresy. One of the things that's interesting here is that Dante places fraud lower than violence in hell. Remember, above us in the seventh circle are the mass murderers, the suicides, the blasphemous. That's all above us. Dante is doing this rather intentionally because he is specifically contradicting St. Thomas Aquinas. In the Summa Theologica, in part two, section two, Question 116, objection to, and ab- the answer to objection to. Well, if you know anything about the Summa, that makes sense, but only if you know anything about the Summa. <laughs> so it's 2.2.116.2.1, but oh, God help us to even think through that. But anyway... Right there, Aquinas says that all things being the same, it is a worse sin to harm someone openly, that is by violence, than secretly. Right there, we seem to see that that Aquinas is saying, hey, you know what? Open violence against people is much worse than kind of backhanded secret violence like counterfeiting like impersonating people, like false counseling. And Dante seems to be going against Aquinas here. By the way, this, this uh, sentence from Aquinas, this objection and answer to an objection and all that comes up under a larger question of is uh, quarreling worse than flattery, is, when there's sins, right, is to quarrel a worse sin than to flatter someone. There are all kinds of objections to this question, and then the answers to the objections in the Summa, and inside these answers to the objections, Aquinas comes upon this point. Dante is putting fraud lower than violence, and we have to really question this, because you and I believe, surely, that mass murder, that somebody who goes around slaughtering thousands of people in militaristic campaigns is much worse than somebody who counterfeits some coin. It seems counterintuitive to us. But let's take Dante for Dante and say that Dante is clearly believing, oh, how do I say this, that The sins that destroy the fabric of society are worse than the sins that even destroy human lives in that society. In other words, the individual lives are worth, dare I say it, less than the concept of society as a whole. I mean, this comes. All the way back to heresy, right? If you and I just think about this right now, standing in the 21st century, whether you believe in God or not, you would say that heresy is a worse sin than counterfeiting. Heresy corrupts the soul. Counterfeiting, what does it do? It corrupts currency. But to Dante, the corruption of society coin that which makes society possible in an early modern late medieval era (laughs) and and indeed in our 21st century too coin counterfeiting that is worse than corrupting the soul by the way that again contradicts aquinas at book 2 section 2 question 11 objection 3 that's again a Uh, Aquinas is saying, well, hey, counterfeiting isn't nearly so bad as corrupting souls. So uh, once again, a strike against St. Thomas Aquinas. But all of this says to us that Dante must view the social contract as more fundamental to human life than even the individual lives inside that contract. Now, when we cross down into the ninth pit, the next pit ahead of us, we are going to find people who murder each other for fraud reasons or who commit fraudulent acts that end in the death of others. So it's not totally the case here that Dante somehow thinks that murder is not as bad as, oh, I don't know, um, giving false testimony in court. Yet, at the same time, as we stand here at the back of the Eighth Circle, we can see that Dante's focus is on society as a whole rather than the individual members of that. The Ninth Circle ahead of us will fudge all of that up and smear it a bit, but let's just take it for where we are right now. Without a doubt, the Eighth Circle of Hell is perhaps the most human part of all of hell. The figures inside the Eighth Circle are highly characterized. Even in that very first pit, the venal Venedico Caccianamico is in direct contrast to the noble Jason, or the mewling, nasty Catalano and Loraringo amongst the hypocrites are in direct contrast to the almost heroic Ulysses ahead of them. It seems as if the character Characterizations here are even greater than Francesca and Chaco and other figures who we have passed. They seem even more individualized here. And I think that that's really important to the pit. I mean, we have such unbelievable speakers. Ulysses, Master Adam, Guido de Montefeltro, even that Catalano and Lodoringo figures in Hypocrisy. Such unbelievable human interactions. The interactions between Dante and Virgil, I would argue, get more human. Amen in the 8th pit. Virgil expresses pique. He expresses irritation. He expresses a, uh, an affection for the pilgrim carrying him down into pits. He, he, is, oh, he is a father figure. Their interaction is just much more human here. It's much less teacher and student although it's still teacher and student of course, but it's much more counterparts or how do, how do I say? It's much more a bond of affection Which, of course, as you well know, (laughs) if you've ever been married or even in a relationship, you know those bonds of affection flip to bonds of irritation in about five seconds. This whole eight circle strikes me as much more human. It's. Digestive. So much of it is about the digestive tract, whether it be people split from where the body forks or people with dropsy from where the body forks at its legs all the way to the flatterers sitting in human excrement. There's so much digestive here and so much food imagery cooking those barrators like a chef in boiling oil. There is so much that is, again, human, and there's not much more human, right, than the digestive tract. It makes us feel about as animalistic (laughs) as we can possibly feel. It reminds us of our biology at every turn. But I want to stop here and make a point about this. While we can look at the eighth circle as perhaps the circle that most looks like us, that we see fraudsters in our current world, political fraudsters all around us in the modern world, economic fraudsters. I mean, how many of us are bombarded by ads on our social media feeds for investment strategies or real estate strategies? We are just in a constant state of encountering fraudsters. Without a doubt, when we enter the eighth circle and exit it, we have found ourselves in a place that is very much like our own place. But I just want to tell you that that notion that we read literature in order to mm, find ourselves, to find reflections of ourselves, that is a very modern notion. Let me just back up and explain that for a minute. But for the 20th century, and even in the early part of the 20th century, literary studies were dominated by the discipline of philology. Philologists went about trying to find the Etymologies of words, trying to find the Greek roots, the Roman roots, the Latin, or the Latin roots. I mean, the Sanskrit roots. I don't know, how to name it. They went around trying to figure out how words were used. If you've ever used an Oxford English Dictionary as an English major, an OED then you know kind of the end game of philology because the Oxford English Dictionary lists not only the definitions of words, but it traces their usage in print from even back to early sources, even back toward Old English. So it'll take a word and it'll show you how it's been used over the centuries in various print locations. That's kind of the end result of a philological look at literary studies. And even when I was an undergrad in the late 70s, there were still Old philologists running around. <laughs> there's, there's this old philologist in the English department at Baylor where I did my undergraduate. And she was a countess. I'm not making this up. She had married a German count at the end of World War One, I think, she was old as dirt, and she still wore the countess signet ring. Let me tell you, there aren't very many countesses running around Waco, Texas. She was a philologist of the old school. That's the way she approached literature. So when you would read a Wordsworth poem with her— She didn't really care what it meant. I mean, she did care what it meant, but she didn't really care. She cared about Wordsworth's use of, oh, I don't know, the word getting and spending. And where do these words come up? And how did getting get its colloquial meaning by the time Wordsworth uses it to mean the accumulation of goods? And how did that word come through tradition to get to that place? That's an old school philologist. This all changed with the coming of F.R. Levis, a Cambridge scholar and later in his life, someone who taught at the University of York in the UK, but first a Cambridge scholar who was born in 1895 and died in 1978. And F.R. Leavis's great contribution is his book, The Great Tradition. And you may disagree with Levis in thousands of ways. Listen, no question that there are all kinds of elitist problems related to F.R. Levis. But his students, who became known as Levisites, no joke, the Levisites went out and by this point, by the time that you and I are here, we are all Levisites because what levis said is that the great works of literature homer thucydides virgil dante milton shakespeare i don't name it name any work you want to name the great works of literature can still speak to us today that was his basic claim and that claim was revolutionary the Old philologists hated F.R. Levis and his students, the Levisites. I tell you this, Dr. Cornelius would have fainted at the way that we are approaching Dante in this podcast. So, the notion that we read to see reflections of ourselves is a very modern notion, not even a hundred years old. isn't it then a wrong notion no i'm simply trying to put it in its historical context dante does not read the aeneid to see a reflection of the middle ages of course <laughs> Dante doesn't know he lives in the Middle Ages, but you know what I mean. He doesn't read the Aeneid to see a reflection of his own times, nor a reflection of himself. Rather, he reads the Aeneid to find textual support, to find authoritative support, to find part of the vision of his own afterlife. He uses Virgil as authoritative underpinning. He's not reading the Aeneid the way you and I now would. We would read the Aeneid and say, oh, look, it's about nobility, and it's about family, and it's about ties, and it's about finding your destiny, and it's about, you know, all these things that we want to. do. I want to find my destiny. <laughs> I fear this podcast may be it, but I want to find... <laughs> destiny. I want to find what's true about me. And so I'm reading the Aeneid in that way. Dante is not reading Ovid, Lucan, Virgil in that Way he is looking at them in a completely different way. The notion that you see a work of literature as a reflection of yourself is extremely modern. And I should just say, just as a side point before we pass on, to say that I have to see myself inside a work of literature, it is at its core narcissistic. And I want to tell you that this always sits behind my brain during this podcast because I want to push linguistic, artistic, poetic problems a little forward in the podcast why because i want to make sure that we are not always turning toward that which makes us human as found in the comedy that is i'm trying to turn it away slightly from a narcissistic reading this is why Kids no longer want to read so much literature. I had a friend, I'm, I'm way off topic now, but I have a friend who taught at a major boarding school and they used to teach the Odyssey to seniors every year. They no longer do. Why? He said, because the students won't read it. And that blew my mind. I'm like, won't? You mean you're given a choice? Well, I wasn't given a choice back there with Dr. Cornelius at Baylor. I was given a choice about reading Wordsworth or whatever. It was just a sign. What do you mean they won't read it? And the answer to that was they don't see themselves in it. And I thought, Ah, we've come to the end of FR Levis. We've come to the end point of where that finally lands. That is, not only do I have to see myself in something, but if I don't see myself in it, then it's of no value. Well, listen, we can see ourselves all over the circle of fraud. I see myself in A Reflection of Virgil and his Irritation, in Dante's scared fear in front of certain encounters in this pit, I see myself throughout this pit, and I specifically see the world I live in, which is chock full of fraudsters. One of the things that's so interesting about the pit of fraud is that it invites us to interpretation without then answering that interpretation. Let me give you a couple examples of this and it happens largely in the architecture of the eight circles. So my examples are going to be architectural. Dante descends into the malabolgia, into the evil pouches, twice. He descends into the third pouch to see the Simoniacs and specifically Pope Nicholas III, and he descends to the bottom of the sixth pit with the hypocrites, Well, third and sixth of ten That's bringing up medieval numerologies of three, and therefore it makes us look ahead to nine. Interestingly, Dante and Virgil don't descend into nine. Is there a comment then being made by the poet? If the pilgrim and Virgil descend in three and six, we would expect in medieval numerology they would descend in nine. Is that non-descent in nine because that would complete it as three times three, which is super divine significance using the number three as the Trinity. Is there actually something in nine that is a descent, especially since it involves Jerry Del Bello, one of Dante's actual relatives amongst the schismatics. I mean, in the third pit, as we said, that's the Simoniacs. That's a willful descent. Virgil says, you want to get closer. Dante says, sure. Virgil carries him down. The sixth pit is an unwillful descent. That's the demons are chasing them out of the orders. They look around. The demons have set out after them after they slipped off and they go sliding down that slope into the sixth pit with the hypocrites. So a uh, descent that's willed, a descent that's not willed. Does that mean the ninth pit has something to do with the will? Oh, interesting with the schismatics. See, Dante seems to be architecturally setting up some questions that he is leaving unanswered. Let me give you another architectural example. In the first pouch, the fourth, the sixth, and the ninth... The fraudsters are continually walking. In the first pouch, that's our panderers and seducers. They're being whipped by the blackhorn demons. In our fourth pouch, that's the fortune tellers. They're walking around with their heads turned around backwards. In that sixth pouch, that's our hypocrites in their gilded leaden cloaks. We're told they're walking round and round and round. And in the ninth pit, that's the schismatics. They are being hewn apart, walked around, healed, and then hewn apart again one four six nine four pouches in which there's a constant circling motion are those connected same thing with the immobile uh, in the second pouch the flatterers they seem to be completely immobile in excrement In the third pouch the popes in the rock they're immobile in those holes in the tenth pouch most of them are immobile with disease or the second, third, and tenth pouches connected? See, these are interpretive questions that Dante almost is daring us to ask. If we were in an undergrad seminar, I would, without a doubt, assign you a paper <laughs> to look at the first, fourth, sixth, and ninth pouches of fraud and... And find parallels. Are there ways that these pouches are in parallel? And you might, I'm making this up completely off the top of my head. You might say, oh, look, in the 12th line of each of these pouches, X happens. Or, oh, look, at the back of each of these pouches, the rhyme scheme works out in similar ways, or the verbs fall in similar places. I'm, I'm totally making this up. And any answer we have about how the first, fourth, sixth, and ninth pouches are connected, any answer we have is completely speculative. But again, the eighth pit does seem to invite a great deal of speculation. It's made out of rock. Well, (laughs) rock, gosh, that doesn't have any uh, interpretive value, does it? Well, the popes are pushed down into it. This is suggestive of Peter when Jesus says to him, you know, you, Peter, by your confession of faith, are a rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. And the popes are being pushed down into this rock. But is this rock? Not in hell? Given that it's in hell, it's some kind of infernal twist. Well, does that then mean that the rock elsewhere is an infernal twist oh certainly with the bridges down over hypocrisy that's inviting us to an interpretation why are only the ones with the hypocrites in ruins and down why are all the other bridges standing we know they came down at the harrowing of hell but what about hypocrisy particularly brings bridges down Ulysses and Guido, there's another structural, architectural issue. How do they interrelate? They're in the same pit. They're both locked in these tongues of fire, these little, I shouldn't say tongues, these little fireflies of fire. How is it that, in fact, they interact with each other? It structurally invites us over and over again toward interpretation without offering us answers. A weaker poet would fill in all the details. And let me say, if we were reading Brunetto Latini's Tresor or Tesseretto, either of those works, Latini fills in all (laughs) the details. (laughs) Latini never lets you make speculative assessments, good Lord. He's always going to be right there behind you telling you what it all means, right there in back of you saying, and that means, and that's a metaphor for, and that's an allegory for, and that... Ugh, it's it's incessant in the Tresor and Tesseretto. Dante, a much more secure poet. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Let's just go on to another matter from the eighth pit. The eighth pit is full of complex ironies. Let me give you just one example. Canto 21 begins the fifth pit of the bariters, they have passed the fortune tellers, the diviners, who were walking around, with their heads turned backwards. And when we get to the opening of the twenty-first canto, which opens us up into this fifth evil pouch, the opening lines are: "Thus, from one bridge to the next, we, Virgil and Dante, came until we reached its highest point. Speaking of things, my comedy does not care to sing." two things one the poem is named but two there is a gap a uh, openness a hole hey we talked about a lot of stuff and you know what I, I don't need to include that in comedy because my comedy doesn't care to sing about it then what happens we turn to the fifth pouch it's the pouch of the bearers with the black boiling pitch and the demons and the mala branca and it is the lowest most vulgar comedy in all of Comedy. Their names are partly, some of them, vulgar. The action is incredibly vulgar. It involves it involves all kinds of low street comedy, including being outdone in a match of wits like a street game between the barrister who they catch out of the pitch, who rises up a bit, and the demons themselves. It all starts by saying, oh, you know, there's some stuff my comedy doesn't even need to talk about. And then it turns to really vulgar stuff. That is a complex and difficult irony. This circle is just packed full of wildly ironic moments from Ulysses seeing purgatory (laughs) grief to Master Adam and Sinon having their invective match. If we think of Inferno as the most ironic canticle, and it does seem more ironic than Purgatorio or Paradiso, as you'll see. If we think of Inferno as the canticle of irony, then the eighth circle is the epicenter of irony. The comedy is low, vulgar. The poetry is extraordinarily gorgeous peasants with hoarfrost and fireflies. All of this is rubbing against each other. I would even say like Flint making sparks against each other throughout this deeply ironic circle of hell. This circle of hell also includes more women than we have seen since the second circle of hell, the lustful. Up there, we did see Helen, Dido, Cleopatra, Cimmerimus, and then, of course, Francesca with the lustful. There were men. There was Paris, there was Tristan, and, of course, Paolo is next to Francesca. But that was the most number of women we've seen until we get to the eighth circle of hell. Here we've seen Tias, Manto, maybe some of Manto's servants, certainly those fortune-telling women, the peasant women who tell fortunes. We've seen Mira, we've seen Potiphar's wife. There are as many women, if not more, if you count all of those fortune-telling peasant women, more here in fraud than in any other circle of Inferno, which leads us to a question. Why is hell so masculine? Is this a failure in Dante's imagination? Can he just not imagine a woman being a hypocrite? Can he just not imagine a woman being a heretic? Or is it something about how comedy itself is structured? Here's the truth. All of comedy is structured on Beatrice. Truly, by this point, you have forgotten about Beatrice. But let me tell you that by the time you have read all of comedy, you will realize that she is always here and has been always here. She was around at the opening of Inferno. At least Virgil told a story about Beatrice's coming to Virgil and saying, go save Dante, But she's been sitting underneath half of what's going on here, even though you've lost complete sight of her. When we finally meet her, and we won't meet her till the very top of purgatory, but when we finally encounter Beatrice, and then when she leads the pilgrim through paradise until she leaves off with the pilgrim toward the back of Paradiso, but that's another matter. We will realize that she has been the driving force all along. It is the journey to Beatrice that is the journey to God. I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you it again for Dante Human sexual desire, and I don't mean desire as in, ah, oh, look at that pretty, okay, in my case, that pretty guy over there. Maybe in your case, that pretty girl over there. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Human desire is the very fundamental attraction of God. I don't want to put this too bluntly, but okay, I'm going to. That the orgasmic response of humans is, is as close as we can get to the response we have to God. It is the closest divine mirror. I know it's very hard to hear that because we live post-Victorian 19th century, and we can't hardly imagine anyone thinking such a thing. Beatrice is here all along, and maybe that's one of the reasons hell is so masculine, but you'd have to have read all of comedy to know that. Right now, standing where we are, we can just say there are a lot of women in lust, and there are a lot of women in fraud, although we really don't hear from any of those women in fraud. They're all silent. It is only Francesca up in lust who we truly hear from in Inferno. Intriguingly, There is more of God in fraud than there has been up until this point in Inferno. At least that's the way I would argue it. There is a lot of God in fraud. For example, let's go back to that 21st canto, the opening of the Barretters. There's that big simile about the venetians and their arsenale and making ships with pit and all that stuff and after that simile it's the text says at line uh, 16 so not with fire but by the divine arts a thick pitch boiled there in the fifth of the evil pouches that divine arts that's the eruption of God inside the Canto. Remember in Canto 29, the ministress of justice of the Lord on high? Remember that bit? There is more talk of God, I would argue, in the eighth circle of hell than any place else. Why is that? I don't know. I can't. I don't have a big answer for that. Yes, we have a divine messenger who appears waving the stink away from his face before the walls of Dis. And yes, we have had other moments in which Virgil has gotten very close to talking about God, but Virgil has seemed often to veer away from it. And Virgil is given the big speech about Fortune, who is the goddess of this world, way back up in upper hell. That doesn't lead necessarily directly to God. Here there are more overt References to God than elsewhere. Is that because fraud is such a human sin that God, in a Christian tradition, having been incarnated in Christ, is more, how do I say, aware of this distinctly human sin called fraud? It doesn't seem like a real answer to me. That seems like a forced answer. But I can tell you there's a lot of God erupting in the Eighth Pit, and it's curious that it's here. My final point is about language. The Eighth Pit is truly about poetry and language. It is here that Dante is recognized for his Tuscan speech. Of course, he is by Ferranata, too. But here that he is recognized by his Tuscan speech, but as well... Virgil is recognized by his Lombard speech. So many of the cantos open with proems, that is prefatory poems, preface poems, like the uh, apostrophe, the address to Simon Magus that opens the canto on the Simoniacs, or they open with giant similes. In fact, there are places in which it almost seems self-conscious. This is the Only place in all of comedy in which a canto names itself by number. Canto twenty starts out by naming its number. Canto twenty, I tell you, that has made so many commentators so uncomfortable that Dante felt the need to encode the numbering of twenty into the canto twenty of Inferno. But it's part of this kind of, dare I say, self-conscious bit that is the eighth circle of hell. The mid-20th century critic Eduardo Sanguinetti claims that the poetry of fraud, the poetry of the Malabolgia particularly, is the most self-confident poetry in Inferno. I would agree wholeheartedly, 100%. 100%. The Sanguinetti's point is that uh, the opening bits of Inferno are Dante still working out his apprenticeship, and he's still working out the dynamics of his poetry, his relationship to Virgil, his relationship to classical literature. Some of that is still unfinished in the eighth pit. I would point to the thieves and the outdoing of Ovid and Lucan as part of that still unfinished contest with his literary forebearers. And yet, at the same time, these gorgeous similes, these large opening metaphors, these opening passages about Thebes and Troyes, these opening passages that are proems, prefatory poems, apostrophes, or direct addresses to Simon Magus, naming the book comedy, naming canto twenty. I would argue that All of this shows us an amazing self-confidence, and not only that, but even the poetry inside of itself, like Ulysses' speech, which can be interpreted in so many different ways, like the speech of Guido de Montefeltro that says so much more than he even intends it to, like the speech of Master Adam, which is such a masterful stroke of absolute Contemptible and contemptuous humanity. These bits inside the eighth circle are masterfully done poetic pieces. The emphasis on language is becoming more elaborate. In the eighth circle, it's becoming more self-conscious, and it's becoming, therefore, more poetic. It is what poets worry about. And nothing could tell us more about that than the very word malabolja, which means, as we've said, evil pouch or evil pocket or bad pocket. That word is made up by Dante. That's, as we say in literary criticism, a neologism. It is a new word. In fact, Dante will begin the process of making up so many new words in Purgatorio and then in Paradiso. It will go off the chart, as Dante recreates language in the way he needs it. This Malabolgia term is our glimpse that Dante is getting so comfortable with language itself that he can make up what he needs to get his point across, which tells us that the poetry is becoming much more self-confident. It's like reading T.S. Eliot up until The Wasteland. There's so much journeyman work. Eliot comes into his voice in The Wasteland. It's interesting. (laughs) Now I'm going to go off subject about that, too. It's interesting that, of course, when Eliot wrote The Wasteland, it was almost twice as long, maybe even a little more than twice as long, as what you now know as the published version of the poem. Then Ezra Pound got a hold of it and told Eliot he had to cut it. And Eliot cut half, maybe even a little more than half. I can't remember the exact amount. Maybe even a little more than half of The Wasteland and turned it into a much better, better poem. So we see Eliot moving up through journeyman poetry through kind of uh, student poetry and then suddenly hitting it with Wasteland it's the same here I think you can see Dante starting to move up levels of practice he's getting more self-assured about what he's writing and that self-assurance is allowing him to morph warp language into much more elaborate metaphors and even to make up words to make the canto themselves self-conscious about their own openings to, in fact, constantly call us back to the fact that this is a poem being written by a poet who's standing behind us becoming surer and surer of his vision of not only the afterlife, but the truth of human life itself. Lots to have said and lots left unsaid. We just Must pass on to the 31st canto, which forms a liminal space, a threshold space between the eighth and ninth circles. We're going to spend a lot of time in this liminal space because liminal spaces are so prophetic and they're so, to use a word from Angels in America, which I quoted in a previous episode, they are so threshold of revelation. We're going to spend a lot of time in the 31st Canto and then pass on to the ninth circle of hell. To get there, subscribe to this podcast. Please rate it. If you go to the Apple page, you can drop down and it says rate this podcast. And then it says write a review. Click that button. You can write a review. Just say great podcast. Or, Thanks a lot. And I would surely appreciate it. This was a lot to say. But after all, the eighth circle is the biggest piece of real estate. We might as well have a big podcast episode on it. And we might as well move on. I'm Mark Scarborough. Let's take the next steps in the next episode of Walking with Dante.